This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast is powered by, you guessed it, HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. HuntStand's powerful mapping features and revolutionary hunting tools will give you the confidence and knowledge for a safe and successful hunt. There's three different tiers that you can choose from. We've got a free version, and then you've got Pro and Pro Whitetail. Pro will give you access to premium map layers and hunting tools in the United States and Canada, where Pro Whitetail includes all HuntStand Pro features plus powerful tools made specifically for whitetail hunters. If you want to check it out, download HuntStand today. I love each and every one of these episodes and the guests that we get on here. If you're new or a longtime listener, don't forget, you might be listening but not subscribed. We have some awesome guests coming on in the future, so if you don't want to miss out on those when they go live, and if you want to support the show, press subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Today's podcast is brought to you by Savage Arms. Savage Arms is five generations of craftspeople using stripped-back, supercharged American ingenuity to make the most reliable and accurate modern high-performance firearms. To learn more, head to savagearms.com. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of hosting a true Renaissance soul, Mr. Charles Foster, whose journey spans the realms of veterinary science, law, and literature. Our focus today revolves around Charles's intriguing book, Being a Beast, a work that takes us on an immersive expedition into the psyche of animals intertwined with his personal experiences in the wild. Charles brings a unique perspective to the conversation. His adventures from tracking wildlife in the untamed landscapes of the Scottish Highlands to the unconventional experiment of living as a badger in the English countryside, these serve as a backdrop to today's discussion. In Being a Beast, Charles doesn't just scratch the surface. He dives deep into the psychology of animals, offering a perspective that challenges preconceptions and bridges the gap between human and non-human experiences. Today, we're privileged to explore the intricacies of Charles Foster's life, the compelling narrative in his book, and the fascinating connections between his history of hunting 
and the exploration of animal psychology. Join us on today's episode of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast as we welcome Charles Foster. Well, there's no problem. I am terribly English, very embarrassed about that these days. <laughs> um, so I'm speaking to you from the centre of Oxford. So for a lot of my life, I'm a boring academic at the University of Oxford. Um, but I earn my living by uh, writing books. And one of the books that I wrote was, as you mentioned, Will, um, Being a Beast. But all my books have been about the same thing. Um, and that is, what sort of creatures are we as humans? And what sort of place do we live in? Because unless we have some idea of what sort of creatures we are, how can we learn how to behave? How can we learn how to thrive in the world? So everything that I've done, whether it's as a writer or a father or a husband or a friend, has been an attempt to grope towards the answer to that question. What is a human being? Mm-hmm. You know, and I... Where you went with this book, uh, it was quite interesting. Some of the things you put yourself through and the things that you did, especially uh, at the very beginning with the badgers in the book. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, I want you to, can you give us just a, a brief overview of your book, Being a Beast, and what inspired you to write it? So Being a Beast is an account of my trying to get inside the worlds of various non-human animals, badgers, foxes, otters, uh, red deer, and most ludicrously, swifts. You have chimney swifts in the US, don't you? We have a different species of swift Mm -hmm. here, the common swift. Um, And I've always been fascinated as as a naturalist, which I've been ever since I can remember, about how how it's possible to get close to um, animals. Um, So I've looked through binoculars for much of my life at animals. I've looked down gun sights for a lot of my life at animals as a hunter. Um, And I've tried to work out what it's like to be them, which is a question which every thoughtful hunter asks of Mm -hmm. their prey, has to ask of their prey in order to be a good hunter. Yes. Um, and so I I tried in this book to approach that question, what is it like to live in the animal's world in a, in a rather more systematic way? So I read up everything I could find about how the sensory receptors of these animals work. How do their noses work? How do their eyes work? Um, how do their ears work? What, what sort of universe did they put together from all this information that was pouring into um, these receptors? And then I went out into the woods and the mountains and the moorlands and the rivers where these animals live um, and try to experience it because I'm a bit suspicious, particularly being an academic of mm-hmm. theoretical answers to, to questions. Um, and I don't believe anything unless I see it or touch it or feel it. Um, so that's what I wanted to do in so far as I could with these animals that are very, very different to me. Now, in the book, you mentioned uh, it was in the beginning. You had mentioned as you were writing a certain part of the book that, as you were writing, I believe you were sitting under a Cape buffalo that you mm-hmm. had once hunted before. So, I guess the question I have for you: 
are you still hunting at all? You know, since you've gone down this hole of research and writing the books that you have, do you still do that at all? Or have you kind of hung the gun up for lack of better words? I've had a very interesting journey so far as um, field sports are concerned. So as a, as a child, I was, as many children are, an instinctive hunter. Um, and then as a, as a young and then not so young adult, um, I spent a lot of my time uh, roving the world with a gun and a rod. So lots of hunting trips in Africa. Um, every autumn I would get the train north to uh, hunt red deer on the uh, mountains of Scotland. Um, I did lots of uh, shooting of pigeons. I was a, a fanatical wildfowler as well. So lots of my most treasured times have been spent in the early hours of the morning, freezing on a salt marsh, waiting for the geese and ducks to come in. Um, so these were important ways for me of of trying to get close to um, animals, which mm -hmm. is, as I've said, a, a really important way of me trying to make sense of myself and of trying to make sense of, of the natural world as a whole. Um, after having done this project, um, which is described in Being a Beast, um, I didn't feel that that way the field sports way of getting close to these animals had much more to teach me and so I did hang up hang up my guns for a bit um and just recently Will I've thought that there are still lessons to be learned and that just by sitting here in my study thinking about um these problems I'm missing that intimacy which comes between any um thoughtful hunter and the prey so um I'm thinking of going back to shooting again, particularly to stalking again. Um, and I'm still an enthusiastic fly fisherman. So often to be found flogging rivers and lakes with my rod. I heard that you, in an interview you did with a few folks uh, back in 2020, you spoke on that going out in the wild and doing what you've done with these animals essentially helps you become a better man that by being better in the wild, you were able to better perform and better do your duty as father, husband. Talk on that a little bit. I mean, several things about that. The first thing is that we are at root wild creatures. Mm -hmm. you know, the, what we are doing here now, sitting in centrally heated rooms, talking to one another uh, through the ether, is a deeply weird thing to do. So people say of the Being a Beast project, that was a perverted thing to do, a, a, a freaky thing to do, an eccentric thing. And it was tantamount to child abuse to take your children on these adventures. Um, <laughs> You know, this is a case for social services. Um, of course, of course, what what really is a case for social services is not doing this with your children. Um, yeah. All children like um, pretending to be animals in wild places because that's what humans naturally do. Mm -hmm. We have only um, done what you and I are doing at the moment, talking to one another in centrally heated rooms for a tiny fraction of our life as a species. We've been behaviorally modern humans uh, for about 45,000 years. Um, we've been anatomically modern humans for a lot longer than that. 
So a, a relationship with the wild is is woven into our constitution. That's what we really are. If you rip the suit off uh, a Wall Street banker, you find uh, uh, an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer immediately below. Um, so we can't cut the wild out of ourselves uh, without um, killing ourselves. So one of the things I meant was that uh, by establishing my relationship with the wild, I become more what I really at root am. And therefore, I can be a more authentic father and uh, husband and friend. Um, another thing that I meant was that you know, this effort of trying to get inside the heads of somebody very different from myself, uh, whether it's a badger or whether it's somebody who's politically on the other side of the spectrum from me, mm -hmm. um, is a, a morally good thing to do because it requires you to be empathetic, requires you to think your way out of your own skull into somebody else's position. Um, and that is the basis of all decent conduct. That's the business of being um, alive as a moral human being. And if if you could do that for something as different from you as a fox, then perhaps you can do that for your next door neighbor or your child. That's so true. You know, let's let's get back to the book, you know, with your approach of living with all these different animals. And uh, maybe we can specifically we don't necessarily have to focus on one of these species per se. I mean, we could on any of them uh, elaborate on some of the methods you employed to immerse yourself in their world. Talk to us about that. Well, one example would be badgers. So you and I have very visual worlds. We look out at the world and we um, tend to decide what the world is like just on the basis of looking at it and you can tell that from the way that we talk about our understanding of the world if we understand something we say ah i see um a badger's world is very different it uh has very poor eyes and it constructs its world mostly through its nose it's a it's a an olfactory animal and so i tried to reawaken my nose uh, we have surprisingly good senses of smell as humans. We don't normally use them. Mm -hmm. We don't normally pay attention to all those scent molecules which are pouring into us all the time. You know, just as you and I are sitting here, um, millions of scent molecules are pouring over the olfactory epithelium in our noses. And, and until I suggest that we should take notice of it, we don't notice that it's happening. Um, so part of uh, what's uh, involved in uh, entering a badger's world is simply learning to pay attention to what's happening to us all the time, learning to use these almost always unused resources that we have inside our own noses and inside the parts of our brain which process um, all that information. So we did stupid things, my son and I, um, in trying to learn to be olfactory animals. So we would um, light different types of incense, joss sticks in different corners of the house, blindfold ourselves and then try to navigate ourselves around the house by paying attention to their swirling currents of scent. And like everything, you get better at practice. Mm -hmm. um, and just as a master of wine, 
will be able to learn after years of practice um, the difference between a uh, 1971 uh, claret and a 1974 claret so we learned to um, distinguish between the different types of incense that were swirling around the room so that's just a stupid example of, of of how we can learn to use the resources which are embedded in our heads all the time and, mm -hmm. and therefore to be more alive everywhere we go as as human beings and we have at least five senses we choose to use only one of those our vision um, and just think what our business lives would be like and our romantic lives would be like if we chose to make decisions about business and about relationships based on just 20% of the available information. We'd be bankrupt and we'd be friendless. Um, yeah, that's what we choose to do in relation to the whole world. So part of what I was doing here was to try simply to be more aware in the world wherever it is so you can be a, a wild animal in a shopping mall if you go if you go into it with all your senses switched on yeah i'm, I'm appalled uh, at how how poor we choose to be um how much information how much sensation we we choose to ignore life could be so much more full if we learnt the lessons from Foxes, badgers, deer about how to live in a shopping mall or any other wild place because the shopping mall is a wild place too. This episode is brought to you by Matthews Archery. By far, my new favorite bow is the Matthews Lift 33. After the Phase 4, I really didn't know how much better Matthews could make their bows especially after the new RPD system, the bridge lock. I just didn't know how they could do it, but once they sent me the lift and I put this thing in my hand and got it set to where I wanted and shot that first arrow, I was amazed. I just could not believe how dead in the hand this bow is, the smooth draw, and how much lighter this aluminum bow is compared to the majority of the carbon bows on the market. So if you're interested in a lighter, faster, and quieter bow, make sure you check out the Matthews Lift. Head to MatthewsInc.com. Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Outdoors. To check out Yamaha's proven lineup of side-by-sides, ATVs, and off-road vehicles, head to YamahaMotorsports.com. Why do you think it is that we've lost this, I guess you could say, for lack of better terms, that we're only using that 20%, if you will. I think there are strong evolutionary reasons for choosing to um, concentrate on vision. So vision and cognition, our thinking, our higher thinking, are bolted together very closely. Um, and because our way of thinking gives us such a selective advantage, I think that natural selection has selected out vision as our primary sense um, and uh, has allowed our non-visual senses to atrophy. That's one part of it. I mean, the other, the other part of it is that we have moved into urban places mm -hmm. um, where it's, it's possible perfectly well to um, survive. And on one level, 
um, to thrive without using um, these other senses. Um, you, know, you will know, as somebody who spends his life in the real wild, um, that uh, there are much more interesting things to smell and to touch and to listen to um, if you're in a woodland than um, if you're in the, the, the deafening cacophony uh, of a city. Um, so a, a wild place is a more rewarding place if you've got all your uh, senses switched on than, than a city is. So the move to cities has um, has made us shut down a lot of these a lot of these senses. Um, and sometimes it can be quite painful to be properly switched on in a city because mm. it's deafening. Yes. Um, you know, when I came back from this badger session in in a, a Welsh woodland, um, I came back to the tiny little town Abergavenny. Um, in the uh, the centre of Wales, and um, although there were only a few cars just trundling down the road, they seemed to me to be monstrously deafening. Um, I had to put earplugs in. And then when I got on the train back, I had to put in um, had to put on recordings of birdsong because the noise that was around me all the time seemed seemed obscene. So we're disastrously urban creatures and the the senses which we need in order to be fully switched on are, are sometimes really uncomfortable to, to to have switched on all the time do you think uh probably I, I would have to say within the last i mean 30 40 years i mean you've seen a lot of people uh drawn to the outdoors and love it and part of why I would say hunters and just different outdoorsmen love it is kind of like what you talked about a little bit ago is there's so much out there for you to touch, feel, smell that we get drawn to that. And do you feel like that missing part of, you know, what we've essentially evolved to draws people back to the wild? Yeah. We know at some level that that's where we're meant to be. Mm-hmm. We know we know at some level that when we're not meant to be in an air-conditioned open-plan office, um, and we know that um, if children are brought up without any access to a green place, they have a massively increased incidence of uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They have a massively increased. Um, chance of being depressed. If you're a cynical CEO who wants to get the most productivity um, out of your workers, you make sure that um, their computer looks out over a piece of woodland or a bit of green lawn. Um, we know that people recover faster from their operations if their hospital room looks out at a bit of green rather than at the wall at the back of the um the hospital um all of which to say is that we are as creatures not designed for the sorts of lives that that, that we're in our, our whole thriving um at, at every level uh, physical emotional spiritual everything else um depends on us behaving in the way that we're designed to behave uh which is basically a hunter-gatherer way you know so uh, acknowledging that we're part of the natural world um 
and having an attitude of reverence towards the natural world, which you see in the best of hunters Mm -hmm. and which you don't see in uh, the really crass macho hunters um, who are uh, an embarrassment to the hunting community, aren't they? I'm sure sure you would agree Um, and would be uh, cold-shouldered by every proper hunter-gatherer there's ever been. Because in those hunter-gatherer communities that have a, a real relationship with the natural world, there is um, a, a, a real difficulty about eating. And, and the real difficulty about eating is that you know, everything that you need to kill in order to eat is a, a morally significant thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it has a soul, and killing it is a morally significant thing to do um and requires this sort of choreography of thanks when you've killed it request to the animal before you've killed it that it you be allowed to do it and, and i see that attitude um in in the best of hunters so i, I love for example the um the, the german tradition of of putting a, a leaf or a, a flower on the body of the animal that you've just shot uh, as a sign which a hunter-gatherer would understand to say thank you um mm-hmm. i respect you um, and it would follow as well that after the animal's dead um you don't just sling it in the trash um no it's got something to say about the the way we butcher the way we cook um you know if something has been killed by us it, it deserves to be celebrated by being the center of a great feast. Absolutely. But, 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 but look, this, this is all old hat to you. I'm sure you agree. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we, uh, that's what my family lives on is, uh, the animals Good. that, that I harvest and we don't buy meat from the grocery store. Uh, Good. If, if we do, it's the occasional chicken. Uh, but now my wife's considering, uh, raising chickens. So we'll probably, <laughs> we'll probably be doing that before long. Uh, I want to come back to the animals and, you know, we can talk about the fox, the swift. Uh, the one that interested me the most was the red stag. And you put yourself in a pretty interesting situation with some dogs. <laughs> well, I am, as a human, a, an apex predator. Um, and that, that's what I was taught I always was and that when I became a hunter was what I actually was um and so to get inside the mindset of a hunted animal is a really difficult thing for me to do um and one of the ways that I tried to do it was to be hunted by dogs myself um it wasn't a great success because I knew that I wasn't going to be killed um, by these dogs when they caught up with me. The worst that was going to happen was that I was going to be slavered and covered in their saliva. Uh, but but it, uh, in at least for a few moments as I was running across the countryside, pursued, gave me a, a little bit of a an insight into what it is to be a little bit further down the the the, the pyramid of uh, of being. Yeah. But I think I could probably learn a lot more about being a prey species by going and living amongst the destitute in a cardboard city in the inner city than I could by being chased by bloodhounds across Somerset. 
That's that's you also lived with Fox in the inner city. Talk, mm. talk to us well, about I, that. I was living at the time in the east end of London. Mm-hmm. Very un, very unhappy time because it was uh, it was a place to which, like most people who live there, I think I didn't feel properly connected. It's quite mm-hmm. hard to be connected to uh, a place as built up as that. Um, but foxes made me connected to the place in a way that I never imagined because uh, they inhabit the east end of London far more intensely than I ever could. Uh, and of all the animals that I looked at in that book, and you know, they're the ones that I felt closest to simply because they just like we are are fantastic sensory all-rounders they're not scent specialists like badgers are Um, they have wonderful noses they have wonderful uh, ears they have wonderful eyes which um, are very good both in the dark Mm -hmm. and in the light the shape of their pupils changes to allow that have ridiculously sensitive feet. Nobody knows why their feet are so sensitive. Really? Um, um, they, they know where they are in relation to the north and the south. Um, domestic dogs do too, actually. So if you go into the most disgusting public park that you know, I'm sure you don't have disgusting public parks in Texas, but we do over here. <laughs> but if you go into a really disgusting <laughs> public park and you notice the direction in which the dogs are uh squatting when they defecate they squat overwhelmingly along a north-south axis foxes too uh, have a, a knowledge of magnetically where they are so they tend to um jump much more successfully onto the mouse or vole which they're hunting if they jump in a northeasterly direction and they know this is so clever uh, not just the direction of the vole um but because of this magnetic sense, um, exactly how far away it is. Very clever. Anyway, look, the the point of saying all that is that um, foxes walk through London, my bit of London as was, uh, fully switched on. And if I could learn how they did it, then the East End of London will be a much fuller, more colourful, more charismatic place uh, than it seemed to me. So they were my great tutors. Um, and I recommend to anyone that they become a fox. They will squeeze much more out of life than they probably do at the moment. The most interesting one is what you did with the Swifts. Talk to us about that. I mean, how how did your perspective change or what was the thought uh, the whole time you were out there? Well, the first thing to understand about the Swifts is that they are very different from me. Um, Not only do they live in the air, but they live in the air in a way that very, very few other species can. So they're ridiculously aerial birds. There are Swifts which nest each year um, a few feet above my head. In this study which i'm speaking to you from now when they leave the nest they fly almost immediately to africa um, they may be on the wing not touching down at all uh, from the moment of leaving the nest for perhaps three or four years before they come back and nest in my eaves again to breathe wow and 
that time they are riding the thermals in the atmosphere all the time, sleeping on the wing, obviously eating on the wing. They even, when they come back finally to breed, uh, mate on the wing. Um, so a creature less like a lumpen earthbound animal like me, it's it's difficult to imagine. Um, ever since I was a kid, I've been obsessed with uh, swifts. Uh, that happened from the, the moment I first saw them. I was uh, watching a group of house martins uh, hunting over the, the playing fields by my school. And then there was this other creature um, above them, fantastically faster, um, fantastically more impressive, much more powerful than they were. And that was a swift. Um, so I started following their migration paths across Europe, across the Straits of Gibraltar into Africa. Um, I went to Africa on many occasions to uh, follow their uh, routes as they follow the uh, the insects which themselves uh, track the um, tropical rains. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried everything I could to enter their worlds, just as I had done for the other animals. So stupid things um, like uh, hang gliding and paragliding, standing in the tops of trees amongst uh, groups of uh, feeding swifts so close sometimes that I could see the colour of the inside of their mouths as they uh, trawled for this um, airborne plankton. Um, and nothing really got me close. Um, but uh, it, it did make me reflect on the weirder sort of senses, the senses which we all have apart from uh, the usual ones like... Um, smell and sight and hearing and so on because um there was a very strange experience which i had in africa i'd gone there to uh, try to catch up with the swifts uh, which uh, hatched in oxford here um and i looked for them and looked for them and looked for them i couldn't see them and i was asleep under a bush and then i i woke up and i knew they were going to be there um wasn't that I'd heard them because the swifts are silent when they're on migration in Africa in the winter. Mm -hmm. I knew they were going to be there, and sure enough, uh, there they were, circling just ahead. So th there seemed to me to be some sort of weird uh, connection between me and and swifts, which can't be explained in terms of our normal senses. Can't be um, explained in terms of anything other than something like telepathy. Now, th this will probably make all your listeners. Uh, write me off as uh, a hysterical crank, but I'll just remind <laughs> you that um, almost all hunter-gatherer people have precisely this sort of connection with their prey. So Lawrence van der Post wrote about um, Sand Bushman knowing from 50 miles away exactly what the distant hunting party had killed and exactly when it was going to come back. Um, Hunter-gatherers know, uh, partly, of course, because they're brilliant naturalists, but partly through other strange sort of senses, um, when the herds are going to arrive on their great migrations. And I've spoken to many thoughtful, non-hysterical hunters who feel 
uh, that same sort of, uh, of of connection, which can't be explained in terms of our usual senses, uh, with with the prey species and with the natural world mm-hmm. uh, more generally, and and that that experience anyway gave me um, some sort of reassurance that uh, a meaningful connection with these animals that I so loved and so uh, wanted to get close to wasn't as ridiculous as it might at first have seemed. And you, and you feel that you really can't put it into words or explain that connection or explain why it, why it's happened really. There's no way of putting it into words, but these sorts of senses are very common in our everyday experience. So lots of us, for example, know to an extent much better than chance uh, when someone is staring at the back of our head. Um, Lots of your listeners will know that their dogs know when someone is coming home, Um, even when uh, they couldn't have heard the car, Um, even when the plans of the person returning home have changed uh, at the very last minute. so there are more senses uh, that we have than we normally give credit for. Almost that sixth sense that you hear people talk about at times. Well, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. Yeah, what, uh, a, a, a lot, a lot more. True. Than, 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 than the usual five. Yeah. Very true. How has your exploration of all these different animals' worlds affected your relationship with nature? An environment you know since doing that how have you walked out i mean when you walk outside is it any any different for you now i mean has that changed at all yes so the the american naturalist um, david abram uh, talks about going out onto his balcony at his house in new mexico looking out at this wild world that he so loves Mm -hmm. and um, saying, good morning. And then he realizes uh, that uh, his is just one set of eyes looking out and that he's being looked at by millions of sets of eyes and listened to by um, a a million set of of ears and other sensory receptors. Um, And that sense of being appraised, judged by the non-human world um, has affected every walk that I have in the woods or um, across a moorland. Um, It's made me want to behave better, (laughs) just as we all know we want to behave better if we know that we're we're being looked at. Um, It's made me feel much more part of the wild world uh, than I did um, before. I thought of myself as above it, um, as, as the world as a, a resource, um, you know, something to be exploited. Whether it was from the uh, the desire to get my dinner, or uh, simply the the pleasure that I get from from being um, outside. Um, and I no longer saw it like that at all. I saw myself as a, as just as much a part of it as the the bird on the tree, and that's a uh, a humbling thing to realise. Um, and that has various other spin-offs. 
um, if you feel part of the world which you can see changing and dying and being recycled all the time, mm-hmm. perhaps the knowledge of your own death and recycling is not going to be quite so fearful if you're uh, aware of that happening to to everything else. So, yeah, lots and lots of of changes. Muddy Outdoors is a brand that's been around for quite some time now. At Muddy, they recognize that the essence of a hunter transcends seasons where their gear is crafted to support the relentless spirit of the hunter year-round. For Muddy, hunting is not just a seasonal pursuit. It's a constant. And I, for one, definitely resonate with this. And this past year, I got some new Muddy Box blinds that have been game changers for us down here in Texas. And I've been running Muddy Tree Stands for as long as I can remember. So if you're interested in learning more about Muddy, head to GoMuddy.com. One of my favorite knives that I used this past fall from the Deerwoods in Kansas all the way up to the Elk Mountains of Colorado was SOG's Ether FX. It's lightweight and compact design plus heavyweight blade quality made for the perfect knife for every use that I put it through this fall. I took it on every adventure, and if you're in the market for looking for that same lightweight, compact, durable knife that is going to do anything and everything you need it to, highly suggest you check out SOG's Ether FX. To do that, head to SOGKnives.com. And if you'd like a discount on the SOG Ether FX, use discount code HUNTSTAND10 when you're checking out. I want to take a quick second to talk to y'all about Stealth Cam and their all-new trail cameras, new for 2024. And the one that I specifically want to talk to y'all about is the brand new Revolver Pro. This is a 360 degree cellular trail camera. The Revolver Pro is a game changer. The power of six cameras and one sleek, innovative design allows you to cover more ground, capture more detail, and never miss the action again. Discover the future of outdoor surveillance with Stealth Cam's 2024 lineup of cellular trail cameras. To learn more, head to stealthcam.com. And if you'd like a 10% discount on the Stealthcam website when checking out, use code HUNTSTAND10. We've got that discount code along with many more of our partners down below in the show notes. That's, that's, uh, there's lots of different perspectives on that. And uh, across this whole journey, you know, you, you spoke on this earlier that at one time you, you hung your gun up, for lack of better terms. Uh, but recently you started to feel uh, that there's more to learn. We view hunting as conservation, and I believe y'all do too. Um, Has this at all influenced your views on conservation um, or just having that viewpoint within the outdoor world, sporting world, if you will? Well, it it has made me more critical mm-hmm. and i mentioned this already of some of the attitudes of some uh, gun wielders so i don't think there is any place for um the sort of top-down approach to conservation which we which we which we sometimes see um i don't think there's any place for um anyone with a gun or otherwise to, to see themselves as as in control of the natural world right we we need to we need to see the natural world as something um 
on which we are dependent uh, rather than as something which is dependent upon us mm-hmm. then this this knowledge of of interdependence is the only thing which is which is going to save us um as a species from from catastrophe um and i i do think that the particular particularly close relationship which uh exists between a thoughtful uh field sportsman and the prey um can and and should generate that 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 sense of awe that sense of 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 interdependence that sense of gratitude which um should be at the root of of all conservation efforts um and i'm really saddened that uh there's this big divide between the the field sports community and most of the rest of the conservation community to um to 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 feel that simply because someone kills an animal with a gun they are an enemy of the natural world um is uh probably on the one hand very hypocritical because these are probably people who get a slaughterhouse to do all their killing for them mm-hmm. um, but, but but it's also something which doesn't recognize um the the interdependence of everything um and the role that um the role that control the role that uh death and recycling has to have in the the great scheme of things so i i would love i would love these two usually estranged communities to generate some sort of language with which they can speak to one another um you know, the polarization it, between field sports people and the environmental movement is just another sign of the polarization that we see in the rest of society isn't it uh it's almost impossible to to speak across political divides and it's yes. almost as impossible it seems to speak across um this environmental and um field sporting uh, divide um unless some common language is found um such a lot of goodwill is and knowledge wisdom is being wasted which which should go to to making the world a a, a better and kinder place there's a sort of wild kindness which i see in the best of field sportsmen um which i also see in the best of the non field sports um mm-hmm. environmental fraternity and if that wild kindness could be um could be seen as a, a basis for for talking to one another we'd be in a much better place i couldn't agree with you more on that charles could not agree with you more cuz i'm sure you not sure if you've seen just different things that are going on over here in the states but you know with the two different parties going neck and neck at each other um it's it's tiring it's it's very tiring and yeah i i hope that we can find a common ground and move forward what lessons do you think humans can learn from just these different uh, experiments that you've done with these species well they can learn that 
just like Darwin told us. Um, there are furred and feathery and scaly faces just a few pages back in our family history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can learn from that that um, any idea that we are uh, massively superior to non-humans is uh, wrong. Um, having said that, I do think it's also important to acknowledge that humans are very special creatures. I, I don't think that it's the same thing morally to kill uh, a rabbit as it is to kill a human. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we sometimes have to do some serious work to yes. to justify uh, why we why we kill a, um, a non-human in order to eat it. Um, we can by this sort of experiment that I did generate empathy for things um not just for not just for animals but for the uh the people all around us uh we can learn the importance of acknowledging um, our own wild origins we can learn our um our dependence upon uh values and experiences other than the urban ones which all which always surround us we can learn as we were discussing earlier that at root we are wild creatures in a wild world um and we can try to learn how to be wild creatures in a wild world even if we have to live in a, a box in the inner city which some of us have to do mm-hmm. you know, there are there are ways of of trying to to, to bring back these lessons from the wild um, and um, and live more effectively as, as urban creatures in the light of those lessons. In a, a subsequent book of mine, being a human, you know, tries to set out um, what, what those what those lessons might be. Um, but the most simple lesson, of course, is um, get out. Yes. <laughs> get 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 out of the box get out into the wild world and see what it does to you. Um, broker these new relationships with things other than yourself. If you can broker a relationship uh, with a bird or a deer, then you know, maybe you can broker a relationship with your political opponent. Yes. Yes. And that's that's kind of been one of the goals, uh, I guess you could say, of this podcast is – I feel that you hear too much of one side too much, and uh, eventually I, I will get somebody on here that has quite the polar opposite uh, perspective than what I do to talk on uh, in a very respectful manner. That's my plan. Uh, Good. you have any other further plans or uh, explorations or projects that kind of build on being a beast? Well, I mentioned um, a subsequent book, Being a Human. So that was a book which used the methods of being a beast to, right. um, to try to explore three pivotal moments in the history of human evolution. So I went out and I lived as an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer. And I went and lived as a Neolithic farmer. And then I went and lived um, in the Enlightenment. Um the, the, the book I'm writing at the moment is a book which is in some ways um, building on those ideas. So it's a book about 
edge places and edge people and edge ideas. So the idea there is that nothing significant or interesting has ever happened at the center of anywhere. And I, I guess that 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 chimes with some of the things that we've been talking about now. Talking about now, um, you know, if we get out of out of the cities, the big centres there, um, out of the, the the comfort zones which we create from ourselves, we have over the edges, uh, in, in, in on on the edges of our consciousness, on the edges of our comfort. Um, the experiences which really change us, which which push us on, which make us realize what we really are. What do you hope after today, uh, those that may pick up your book after hearing this or just listeners that we have on here today, will take away from this just in terms of their connection to the natural world? The one lesson that um, I'd like people to learn and i'm trying myself to learn it all the time is uh you are wild at heart and uh you will thrive best as a human being if you realize that and structure your life around the knowledge of that and the best tutors um about the skills of being wild are the wild things themselves so get out there amongst them charles I loved everything we've gotten to talk about today and just touch on. I know there's way more to everything we've spoken on today, but to let the listeners know, um, are you on social media or is there anywhere that they can find you, your works more, uh, anything at all? I've got a website, www.charlesfoster.co.uk. Um, I have a, a Twitter account at tweed pipe that's tweed as in what your jacket's probably made of and pipe as in uh, what you shouldn't be smoking um <laughs> at tweed pipe yep love it charles if you ever come to texas you have to let me know because i'd love to meet you in person i'll do that well i've really enjoyed our conversation thank you very much for having me absolutely we'll have to do it again sometime i look forward to it I want to give a shout out to some of our fine sponsors and supporting HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. Started off, I want to thank Hawk Hunting, Hunt from Above, Tenzig Outdoors, Go Further, Hunt Longer, True Globe, When Brightness Counts, Halo Optics, Hunting Success Magnified, AVNX, Unmatched Quality, Zinc, A Champion in Every Call, Boss Buck, the most versatile and user-friendly feeders on the market. Evolve, reap what you sow. Cyclops Lighting Solutions, get out of the dark. New archery products, whatever your broadhead preference, NAP has you covered. And finally, Bloodsport, the bleeding edge of archery. To get a discount on products from the featured partners of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast, enter code HUNTSTAND10 during the checkout process. I'll have all these partners' website links listed down in the show notes below. 